I'm Jill Shong, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, December 21st, 2021. Coming up, we learn about better ways to obtain those minerals important for clean technologies. Technos nanocrystals are now being produced at the ton. We also talk with our very own How on Earth contributor and geneticist, Beth Bennett, about her newly published book, Defy Aging, a beginner's guide to the new science of longer life and better health. You can do this, and I tried to structure my book in this way, is that you can pick whatever systems are most important to you. Is it your skin? Is it your muscle? Is it your bones? We begin with a look at recent news in science. For that, here's Joel Parker. This is a story about a corona, not the small virus that has been taking our attention for the past two years, but the huge atmosphere of the sun. You might have heard in the news last week that, for the first time in history, a spacecraft has touched the sun. That sounds pretty cool, or rather hot. But what does it mean to touch the sun? Although that touch happened back in April, the analysis and results have now appeared in a paper published last week in the journal Physical Review Letters. The spacecraft is the Parker Solar Probe, named after solar physicist Eugene Parker. Launched in 2018, the goal of this mission is to improve our understanding of the sun, where changing conditions can propagate out into the solar system, affecting Earth and other planets. On April 29th, the Parker Solar Probe had its closest pass over the sun. The spacecraft set two records with that flyby. It became the fastest human-made object, traveling at over 330,000 miles per hour. At that speed, it could circle the Earth in just four and a half minutes. And it was the closest flyby of the sun by a spacecraft, at a distance of 6.5 million miles above the surface. At that distance, the spacecraft became the first to enter the sun's corona, which is the outermost part of the sun's atmosphere. It is the part you see glowing when you watch a solar eclipse. The corona is incredibly hot, more than a million degrees, but also very tenuous, about 10 billion times less dense than the Earth's atmosphere at sea level. It is because the corona is so thin that the spacecraft doesn't melt at those temperatures. The particles are hot, but they are sparse. The sun's corona is the birthplace of the highest energy solar particles and the solar wind. As rising heat and pressure push material away from the sun's surface through the corona, the material reaches a point where gravity and magnetic fields are too weak to contain it, and it escapes as the solar wind. That outer edge of the corona is called the alphane surface, beyond which the solar wind moves so fast that waves within the wind cannot ever travel fast enough to make it back to the sun, severing their connection from the sun. Understanding the physics of that boundary in the enclosed corona is important because it impacts the space weather around the Earth, its magnetic fields, and satellites and electromagnetic communications that we depend on, including when you listen to How on Earth. And for How on Earth, I'm Joel Parker. Many of the technologies poised to make our world more climate-friendly, such as electric cars and wind turbines, require a rare earth mineral called neodymium. 
This is used in magnets, commonly used in electric motors and hard disk drives. Mining neodymium causes environmental damage, but researchers at Penn State University have created a greener way to get this sought-after mineral. They extract the neodymium from discarded electronics with a little help from nanotechnology. For more, here's Benita Lee. Nanotechnology is all about materials invisible to the naked eye. Nano means one billionth, so a nanometer is one billionth of a meter, or about the length of three atoms. A sheet of paper is about 100,000 nanometers thick. It's a different world at the nanoscale. The laws of quantum mechanics rule here. Aluminum is explosive. Copper is transparent. Gold can appear red or purple. Scientists who specialize in nanotechnology use reactions like these to create tiny superpowers. A study published recently in the Chemical Engineering Journal describes how scientists have yet again helped nanoparticles use their powers for good by creating a more environmentally friendly way to get an important element called neodymium. It is the main material for making uh, very strong magnets. That's Dr. Amir Shaky, a professor of chemical and biochemical engineering at Penn State University. Shaky says wind energy turbines and electric cars are examples of technologies that need magnets containing neodymium ions. Also, a lot of other industries rely on neodymium from high-end electronics to warfare to electronic kits advanced computers, and many other advanced fields rely on this rare element. Mineable neodymium is scarce. Getting it causes pollution. Nowadays, the extraction of neodymium relies on extreme pH conditions. So it is based on highly acidic conditions, leaching through strong acid. And these processes are not environmentally friendly. Seeking an easier source for neodymium, Shaky's team looked to discarded computers, stereos, and other electronics, because these often contain magnets packed with neodymium ions. To extract ions in a sustainable way, Shaky turned to nanotechnology and paper pulp. The reason to call it sustainable nanotechnology is because our material is based on cellulose, which is the main building block of plant cell wall. It is biorenewable, it's biodegradable, and it is sustainably being produced in the nature. Breaking down that paper pulp further was the next step. So then the whole intact fiber will be broken down into small-scale nanoparticles. We call them cellulose nanocrystals. Cellulose nanocrystals are common in biotechnology. Their ability to strengthen and protect other materials continues to be investigated for everything from medicine to makeup. But Shaky needed special cellulose nanocrystals. Fortunately, a lab where he worked previously had developed ones perfect for extracting neodymium. They're called hairy cellulose nanocrystals. So they are crystals that are attached to two layers of amorphous or disordered cellulose at their ends. We call them hairy because of those disordered polymer chains attached to them, which actually enable us to do all these cool things that other Purely crystalline particles do not allow us to do. To draw the neodymium off of electronic waste, Shaky's team negatively charged their hairy cellulose nanocrystals. 
Like little hands, the hairy particles grabbed the positively charged neodymium ions. Within seconds, Shaky says, they extracted all the neodymium. At this stage, we can confidently produce hundreds of grams of this material. And we haven't tried larger scales, but I don't see any problem with the scale-up because the synthesis of these particles is pretty straightforward. Conventional cellulose nanocrystals are nowadays being produced at a ton per day scale. So our material can also be produced at that scale. This method may soon create a cleaner and greener way to get neodymium and might make getting neodymium easier in another way. China controls 90% of neodymium mining. Even before the pandemic, the costs of this element were rising. Shaky says that his sustainable neodymium recycling method can be done anywhere and is scalable for industry. Shaky is also researching how hairy cellulose nanocrystals can allow for other sustainable engineering applications. Small but mighty, these nanoparticles might just help save the world. For How on Earth, I'm Benita Lee. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Jill Shong. Most people assume that they don't have to worry about getting older until they reach at least middle age. But did you know that many changes associated with aging start much earlier? Some even before the age of 10. What's a person to do? A new book offers explanations and insights into both what causes aging and what are the leading scientific theories about how to promote greater health, even as people rack up more and more years. The book is Defy Aging, A Beginner's Guide to the New Science of Longer Life and Better Health, written by our very own Beth Bennett, a PhD geneticist who has taught biology at CU Boulder for over 30 years. For more, here is Shelley Schlender. Well, Beth Bennett, I know you as my wonderful colleague as part of How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, and now you're a book author, and I get to interview you about your new book, which is called Defy Aging. And hopefully... Everybody will get a few hints as to how to do just that today. Now, this book, when I read it, Beth Bennett, I was impressed by how encouraged I was. You didn't tell me that I was going to live forever. That part was not as encouraging. <laughs> do you want to live forever, Shelley? <laughs> well, you even, you even talked about that a bit. Basically, you talked about health span. Health span is a big deal to me. That's my big thing. I want to live as long as I can while I'm healthy, able to get out do things actively, take care of myself. That's the idea of health span. And then just die in my sleep. I vote for that too. <laughs> in your book, Defy Aging, you talk about how you did have some health concerns. Here you're a biologist, you're a rock climber, you're a healthy person, but you had some health concerns. Yeah, don't we all? I mean, they could range from skin cancers to even little minor things like, oh my, my gosh, my skin quality is deteriorating a little bit. And you might think, well, what's the big deal about that? That's just wrinkles. But no, um, as you lose the texture and support in your skin, you start having more abrasions, more cuts that don't heal as fast. And that healing issue is a big one for all of us because our immune systems start to deteriorate as we age also. And there's certainly things we can do 
I don't want to say to boost them because I really don't like that term. I mean, our immune systems are doing their thing, but we can give them some support and resources that allow them to function a little more efficiently. And so all those little things like scrapes, bruises that might not heal as fast, if our immune systems are functioning optimally, they'll heal faster. There's a huge number of scientific researchers, both in this country and around the world, and they publish their findings in obscure scientific journals. Sometimes it's really tough to read the writing and to figure out what they're saying. I wanted to make the information accessible to people that don't have a scientific background. Well, Beth Bennett, as a professor of biology who teaches, you made a very clear and easy to understand book for some really surprisingly complex concepts in skin health, in bone health, in muscle health. Those were the three that stood out for me. What do people talk with you about when they talk about your book? Which parts of their bodies do they tend to talk about? (laughs) Well, everybody like you, Shelley, has certain systems that they're especially interested in. And a lot of people are interested in brain health and cognitive decline. Oh, I forgot that one. (laughs) Yeah, that's a biggie. I totally agree with you on that one. Um, But everybody has their own specific concerns. And so I tried to focus on areas that are of concern and interest to most people. Like you, muscle and bone are really important to me. And so I tried to go into some depth in those areas. I was intrigued, Beth Bennett, that some of the advice and some of the data that you find is new science that is not standard of practice in medical care yet. And bone health was one example. Do you mind if I ask, are you officially a senior citizen now? I am officially a senior citizen, yep. Well, and so as a senior citizen, It's predicted that your bone health will be going way down, way fast. But in your book, Defy Aging, you talk about how some of the measures of bone health and some of the ways to deal with bone health and the medical practices of today are basically ridiculous. And controversial. Not all the experts agree on them. Like, for instance, with regard to bone health, most people would probably say, oh, you got to keep taking calcium. And one thing I found out to my surprise is that there's no agreement in the research area about what calcium does for bone health. Well, that's right. You indicated in your book, Defy Aging, that taking too much calcium can interfere with proper signaling of cells. It can actually mess up how well the bone is forming. And then there's this difference between the hard outer shell of a bone and the resilient part that kind of is springy like a like a fishing pole. And that's what we really want to preserve in our bones is that elasticity, that springiness, that ability to absorb impacts. Because if you fall and break a bone, it's not the rigidity of the bone that protects you from breakage or fracture. It's the springiness. Some of the listeners may recall that a few weeks ago, I interviewed John Jaquish, who's developed a loading system for bones, which is what actually builds and continues the support of that springy layer over and above drugs, which seem at this point to mainly focus on building the hard outer layer. You described how they actually don't repair the resilient inner layer, which sets you up for cracked bones. Exactly. And that's one of the take-home messages 
to me about the body in general is there's so many interconnected signaling systems and feedback loops. Our bodies are really complicated systems, but they function really beautifully when all the component parts are talking to each other and working. Getting back to this example of bones, if we focus on one aspect, the hard, rigid outer layer, to the detriment of the soft, springy inner layer, then it's not going to work as well as it's supposed to. That's an example from Beth Bennett's book, Defy Aging, details about bone that you might not hear in a standard medical setting that might be helpful to hear and learn about. Let's talk about skin now. Okay. No skin off my back to talk about skin. (laughs) Blood supply to the skin is really critical to keeping it healthy, bringing it the nourishment, and taking away the waste products. By keeping your vascular system healthy, which you can do through exercise and good nutrition, that's probably the best thing you can do in terms of prevention, in addition to topical uh, sun prevention. So we're talking about blood vessels, little tiny capillaries that are feeding the skin. And not only does the skin age, but that system ages. Exactly. Oh, dear. Yes. Yeah. And then that ties into health of all these other systems because the blood supplies every system in the body with what it needs. If that blood supply is interrupted in the skin, for instance, then it doesn't get the oxygen it needs to perform metabolic functions like building collagen. And collagen is one of the most important proteins in the body. Now, collagen, that's the stuff that is in jello. Yeah. So we've all got some jello in our skin. <laughs> when that jello is in the right shape and form, it makes our skin springy and elastic. But when we start losing that collagen, then our skin gets a little saggy. It doesn't heal from wounds as easily. It's easier to damage. Yeah, in a myriad of ways. You know, I was really skeptical when I started reading about taking collagen as a supplement because I've always been told that when you ingest proteins, your stomach acids break them down and that process continues in your intestines. So I thought, well, taking a protein by mouth, that's not going to get into my skin. But I dug into the literature and I found some very interesting scientific papers that did wonderful experiments. They didn't do them with humans, and I'll tell you why, because they fed the rats radioactively labeled collagen in their diet. I don't think that would be something we'd find on a menu in any no, other restaurant. No, definitely not. <laughs> and, and it probably wouldn't fly with institutional review boards that okay human studies. But in rats, about 25% of the collagen that they take in through their diet gets absorbed and moves into the structure of bones, tendons, as well as the layer of dermis or the skin. In humans, the trials that people have done with collagen involve study subjects that have osteoarthritis, which many of our listeners may have had experience with. It's wear and tear. Wear and tear. The cartilage has started to wear down and the body just hasn't been able to keep up with it. Right. We build most of our collagen before the age of five. Now, that's the other thing. Speaking of in your book, Defy Aging, I was really felt defiant about how early (laughs) aging begins with cartilage. The body's ability to make it goes down at age five. The skin Mm -hmm. is most likely to be at its best in somebody's 20s. Muscles, how about muscles, Beth? Muscle is a fantastic tissue that we have. So much of our life is dependent on functioning muscle. And not only does it get us around, but when we use our muscles, they release all kinds of compounds, different chemicals that move through the body and tell the body, hey, I'm working, 
and the rest of you can stay healthy. So muscle activity, i.e. exercise, is really one of the most fundamental anti-aging drugs you can do. Now you walk this talk, or actually you <laughs> climb this talk and hike this talk. Exactly. You're still a rock climber. You're running on the trails of Boulder. And yet you also know that your ability to make muscle, from your book, I'm quoting your, your book, your ability to make muscle starts to go down yes. starting at what age? You know... Just about all of our systems start to decline in our 30s. The reason behind that is fascinating, and I do go into some detail in the book because I love the idea of how evolution has shaped us. Evolution doesn't care about us after our reproductive age. You know, like all living systems, we exist to pass on our genes, that is our DNA. We've been optimized to get to that point, which for humans is probably late teens through late 20s, at least for most of our evolutionary history. We're pushing that boundary like a lot of other things, like our, our complete lifespan. We're pushing that these days quite a lot. But evolution hasn't caught up. So we tend to peak in our late 20s. And then all the repair systems that got us through childhood and early reproductive years start to decline as well. That always makes me a little sad until I realize that we may be able to help maintain the repair and reduce the wear on our bodies and have a life that has this thing called a long health span. Exactly. And one of the ways to do that, the idea of restricting food intake, is well supported by experimental evidence. But there's no big clinical trials, so we don't know how best to go about doing that. You've also been interested in diets that have fewer carbohydrates and fewer mm -hmm. sugars because mm -hmm. there is some indication that those ways to eat also remind the body to stay more in repair modes. Yeah, fat calories are metabolized differently than carbohydrates. And so there's a lot of implications for that in terms of both short-term and long-term health. What I should back up and say, everybody's different. As a geneticist, that's one of my prime statements. Everybody is different. What works for me might not work for Shelley and vice versa. I'm a big believer in experimenting on myself. And, you know, I've personally tried what's called the ketogenic diet, the high-fat diet, and it doesn't work very well for me. Now I'm back to more of a low-carb, kind of moderate protein, moderate fat intake. I try to restrict more the timing of when I eat rather than the number of calories. That's something called intermittent fasting. Exactly. I'll try to eat all my calories maybe three days a week between, say, noon and six. So I have 18 hours of no food. And that's like a little bitty period of starvation. And that kind of tells your body, oh, gosh, things could get rough here. I better be careful, be thrifty with my resources and start recycling and make sure I clean up all my cells and don't let gunk pile up. And the opposite of when you're eating whenever you feel like it, as much as you feel like it, the analogy I like to use is your household. If you're not recycling, you're not cleaning out the garage, the attic is full of stuff, there's just junk all over the hallways, you're going to fall over it and trip. We have all this stuff that can build up in ourselves, too. And if we starve them a little bit from time to time, they wake up and say to themselves, and all this is uh, metaphorical, of course, they don't talk to themselves, but they use chemical signaling systems that say, oh, there's fewer resources. I better start marshalling my recycling and my cleaning abilities and get rid of the crud and be as efficient as I can. 
So our cells discover the hidden magic of tidying up. They discovered it long before anybody that's on Earth today. How somebody eats intermittent fasting, those can reduce somewhat the risk of cancer. They can, and diets can also reduce the risk. And then if you are unfortunate and develop cancer, certain kinds of diets can also facilitate treatments. So there's an interaction between what's going on in the cell and then external manipulations like drug therapies. You've been on both sides of that world, on seeing drugs being developed for treating something and seeing what the side of lifestyle choices can do. Do you have a preference? Personally, I always would go for the lifestyle modifications. One, that's just easier. You can make your choices. But I understand for some people, it's really hard to do those things. In that case, taking supplements or taking drugs is certainly an option. But the downside with those is since everyone's different, it's hard to know what the effect might be on you as an individual. Well, in your book, Defy Aging, you talk about how there's some room to tweak all of these aspects of Mm -hmm. life and health. Right. One way that you can do this, and I tried to structure my book in this way, is that you can pick whatever systems are most important to you. Is it your skin? Is it your muscle? Is it your bones? And then look for options. And if lifestyle choices aren't the best option, then I offer you some supplements or therapies. Seemingly mundane things like giving the body signals from our lifestyles of how to maintain and repair themselves end up still being some of the strongest possibilities to use. Absolutely. And that was one of my main goals is to look at a lot of different options and give people information to understand them so that they can decide what to experiment with. Thank you for doing that. That's Shelley Schlender interviewing Beth Bennett about her new book, Defy Aging. We have a limited number of copies of Defy Aging available to listeners who pledge their support to KGNU. If you'd like to do that, go to kgnu.org and select Donate. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced and engineered by Shelley Schlender. Additional contributions by Joel Parker and Benita Lee. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Hovanas. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Jill Shong.